Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Amy Hopkins, who is the VP of Marketing at Silveris Corporation. Silveris is an industry leader in sourcing B-grade building materials, downfall wood products, and manufacturer closeouts. Amy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me more about your background? I don't know much. <laughs> well, my background, I actually started my career a number of years ago that I'm not going to say <laughs> as, as a first grade teacher in Colorado. Oh, yeah. And I only did that for several years. It was something that I kind of grew up in a family of teachers and so it felt easy, but it just wasn't for me. So in the mid 90s, I moved to Seattle from Denver and decided to change careers at that point. And I ended up getting involved in logistics. And I was in logistics for quite a while. I migrated from working for a shipping agency where we'd go out in the middle of the night and uh, board giant ships coming into port in Seattle and take like, like we'd escort the customs people on board and we'd take care of all their needs while they were in port and that kind of thing. And I eventually moved on into starting a couple new ventures, the most interesting of which was a short line railroad between Eastern Washington and the ports of Seattle and Tacoma. We were trying to utilize some of the capacity on railroads to take some of the big trucks off of the highway. So that was a really interesting project because we started that from the ground up. And eventually I migrated into a logistics software company and that was kind of the hybrid for for my career because I got more involved in understanding software and kind of getting into the project management, product management side of software. But that company was small and not doing well. And ultimately, in 2006, I had a friend who works here at Silveris and she said, hey, I think we have this logistics opening. Didn't you used to do that? (laughs) And I knew that, you know, the writing was on the wall for my company. So I came and interviewed and there was an opening in the marketing department and the guy who was my predecessor here as the VP, he said, I actually need you for this. So I got started. I really just dove in head first. That's the great thing. I'm, I work for a small company. We are only about 85 people and we've been about that size since I've been here. And my my predecessor left about a year after I started working and I talked him into giving me the job then and I've been leading the marketing department which has often been a department of one, (laughs) but all the marketing and all of the product management for our internal technology ever since then. Oh, very interesting. Now, we move goods around and I guess people that don't understand the commercial side of it, it can be quite a battle. How did, what does your technology do and how does the company work? Well, our technology was really how we got started. And our initial goal was the founders of the company were trying to move the at that time it was they were really focused on lumber trading in particular and they were trying to move the lumber trading industry online mm-hmm. because they believed that lumber was a sort of commodity 
but it wasn't commoditized in the financial world. And they wanted to sort of be the agents of bringing that to fruition. It was a really advanced concept at that time and to date still isn't happening. And over time, they kind of, they, they brought on a few lumber traders to buy and sell lumber to kind of fund the technology effort. And since then, we've just grown that trading side of what we do, but everything we do is underscored by technology. So we have a system that's completely homegrown and has just evolved over the years and it manages our entire business. Everything from the beginnings of the customer relationship, we have our own CRM. Our, one of our founders, who's our CEO, he likes to say, we were Salesforce before Salesforce was Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> but we have you know, CRM, we have all aspects of sales and sales assistance and all that kind of stuff on there. We have credit, all elements of order processing, inventory management, logistics, and on through the accounting side of things. We have we talk to our we talk to a formal accounting system, but it goes back and forth between our site and the accounting system all the time. Really in depth reporting. Yeah. So, what does it connect? Like, what sort of like just outside the technology side, it, it connects the buyer and seller. How does that work? Well, we are a true wholesaler, so we take ownership of all the products. Yep. So, the buyer and the seller are not directly connected via our system. We're a middleman in that operation because we take ownership of the product and then we resell it. I mean, we sometimes ship it directly. So the logistics component is there and we deal with our carriers online. They book their loads online with us. And then on the supplier side of things, we have a lot of suppliers. We have a number of suppliers with whom we have a relationship where we are the exclusive buyers of the products that they sell us, particular products. And we have direct connections to their large ERP systems like Oracle and SAP, sorry. And uh, those systems feed inventory data directly to us and we feed order data directly back to them. Just pretty remarkable because companies that do that are huge North American suppliers of, of wood and building products. So Yeah. And and just to sort of clarify the, the point, it's it's B grade, which what does B grade mean? Like I mentioned it, but maybe you can dive into That's a it. good question. And what that means is originally in the lumber and, and panels industry, that means that lumber, as it goes through the lumber mill, there's a grading agent that, that says this board is qualified to go into residential or commercial construction. This board isn't for a variety of reasons. So you'd think that would be throwaway. But what that really means is we take those still good but not rated products and we sell them into industries that can use that like pallets and crates, packaging, stuff like that. We eventually evolved into other building products too. So now what we do is we focus on the lower end of markets like flooring, roofing, things like that. Stuff that has been discontinued, customer returns, the color mix is just a little bit off, something that they don't want in their primary channels. They sell to us because we specialize in keeping those products out of the primary channels and we sell into secondary retailers and barn builders and the smaller places that still buy those things in quantity. So that's what that means. So why, why would a, a company go to you opposed to try to liquidate it themselves? Because they don't want to, it's a small percentage of their mm-hmm. overall production. It's only as much as maybe 5% and that's high mm-hmm. for a given, a given location. So they come to us because we shoulder the credit risk of selling to the customers that would buy 
there the credit risk is higher with the markets that we sell into, but we're willing to embrace that because the return is that the margins are higher on those products than they are on the higher grade products. So those companies want to focus exclusively on their branded products in the building materials, in the case of building materials, working with higher end buyers that will buy at higher rates and they sell to us and we return, we focus on returning the highest returns we can to them. So when a company like that sells through your channel, are they worried about sort of their brand being sort of associated with certain markets or, mm-hmm. or they, at that point, do they, do they care? They, most of them do care a lot. And that's one of the things that we're real focused on is putting processes in place that ensure that we don't sell products to someone that's going to filter it back into the primary branded marketplace. So we, we try really hard to go to end users and we have agreements in place with customers that obligate them to not use the brands that they're prohibited from using, not sell into certain locations or certain sectors or whatever the requirements are of the suppliers. We honor those and we should, we get, we are firm believers in full transparency. So if one of our major suppliers wants to know where their loads are going, we'll show them who the customer is. We'll show them where it went. We'll show them what it's being used for. Mm -hmm. We don't hide anything except for what we sold it for. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Now, what in terms of, I guess, risks, I mean, obviously you don't want to take off a sort of shipment of stuff that or take possession of something that you get stuck with, how do you ensure that that stuff is, is bought on the other side if you're taking possession? How do, you, how do you work with that? Well, we focus hard on building marketplaces for what we take on. And we generally already know what this product is. And we have our, we, our sales staff, whom, whom we refer to as traders, our traders are super savvy in the marketplace. And so we steer clear of products that we know nothing about. Mm. So we already have an expectation of what's going to happen with that product. And there's been times when we've gotten stuck with products, when it's been misrepresented or we agreed to take on too much and we were overconfident about it. And so we shoulder an inventory risk, but we work hard to mitigate those risks. And we've done a pretty good job because we've grown leaps and bounds, even through varying marketplaces in the building materials industry. So that's we just we take calculated risks and that's one of our our success points but but they are calculated and we're smart about it you've been there for a while i mean you must have faced some adversity any examples of of hard lessons or things that you learn working your job well let me think me personally nothing comes to mind right out the gate but as a company we have sometimes taken on a new contract for a product that we were sure we could build a marketplace around and didn't really do enough diligence to find out exactly how much of that product was on the ground and that we were expected to take. We agreed to a certain, we said, oh, you have this many trucks available? We can take care of that. And then come to find out, we go and do a count and it's 10 times the amount, but we've already agreed to it. So jumping on things too quickly, actually, probably personally, that's a thing I've learned too. Making decisions too quickly can have an impact and not being careful enough about that. But at the same time, on the flip side, we aren't going to spin our wheels out of fear and not jump in and grab it because somebody sold that at some point at some time. And so we can find that marketplace again ourselves. Yeah. 
That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's quite a balancing act. I mean, you have a software system, so that I'm guessing that a certain amount of your, your sales are very straightforward and transactional, but it sounds like there's, there's a lot of outreach that happens with your, I guess, salespeople to solve problems yeah. and find fits. What sort of percentage are you looking at? I'm just trying to understand how much of it is technology-based and how much is sort of manual, sort of face-to-face sales. That's an interesting question. <laughs> I would I would have to guess at that, but yeah, that's, guess, that's one thing. I think one of the challenges we face is since we incentivize our salespeople to find new business and to really be aggressive and go out and find new marketplaces, they they get real excited about that. But once a customer comes online and is more run-of-the-mill kind of repeat business, they sort of lose interest and don't contact them as much. And that's one place that we're always trying to improve upon is more penetration with the existing customers we have. So in terms of a breakdown between technology, I would say that we are a relationship-based business and our customers expect to hear from a human being when we have an offer in some fashion. I mean, they, they might email them, but I mean, we're a lot on the phone and and some email. And we we do electronic traditional marketing, but our user base doesn't respond that well to it. So. The technology allows the trader to do more. I wouldn't say the technology on its own is a business closer. It takes a human. Yeah, makes sense. So you said earlier that you got on as a on the job and then you were sort of given an opportunity, or I guess I guess you took the opportunity to take that role as the head of marketing through the organization. When did you start feeling comfortable? Because obviously it was it must have been a change when you sort of took the whole response. Yeah, it was a big change, especially because, as I mentioned, I went to school to be a first grade teacher, (laughs) not a marketing person. So by that point, I had kind of sort of taught myself HTML and that's about it. Of course, that was a while ago. When did I start feeling confident? Yeah. And what did you do? Last week. (laughs) (laughs) I asked that question a lot. (laughs) Yeah, you probably get that answer a lot too, huh? Well, some people say, you know, never. And then some people say they they get a certain point, right? Everyone's got a different mindset. When did you sort of start to feel like you kind of had a handle of things? That's an interesting thing. comes back around to what we were talking about when we first started the call. And that is my hobby, which is off-roading, overlanding. When I started to do that on my own, I learned it through my ex-husband and I always rode along. But there came a point when I started to do that on my own. And I ended up getting into it competitively. And about four years ago, five years ago, I did my first navigation rally raid. And it was a seven-day, completely offline, manual navigation, women only, teams of two women in one big truck, which was my truck. And we went 1,200 miles through the Western United States desert, all off-road, point to point, using maps and compasses only. Wow. And that... Completing that challenge, I got to the end of that and I walked into it going, okay, I'm for sure the only person here who has no idea what they're doing. And all these women that have been racing forever are going to like, just look at me and go, what are you doing here? And they didn't. And it wasn't like that. And I did it and I finished it and I learned how to do it. And it wasn't that hard. Uh I mean, it was emotionally grueling and it was long hours and it was the most amazing experience I ever had. But I walked out of that going, everyone told me how horribly hard that was going to be and I might never want to do it again or whatever. And it wasn't that big of a deal. So I, yeah. I walked away from that 
and realized that the things that I felt like it was, it kind of cured me of that whole concept of imposter syndrome Mm. where I'd been at this job forever, but because of that lack of training in marketing, I always felt like I was missing something or I didn't really know what I was doing or Mm -hmm. I was too novice at this technology or that concept or whatever. And I walked out going, you know what? I'm not like any, I'm like everybody else. Everybody's learning all the time. And the only way I fail is if I don't continue learning. Yeah. That's a great attitude. Yeah. Now it's helped. Yeah. So that, that event cured you of that. What, what, what type of preparation does it take to do that? Well, you have to have some clue how to drive a truck off road, <laughs> which I did know that I was, I, I was, I was a fairly experienced off road driver. The driving part is not that hard. Training in the navigation is key, but almost more than anything, you have to get in the truck with your teammate and spend a lot of time together and practice talking to each other and figure out how to communicate with each other, which is a great skill to translate into the workplace too. Oh, yeah. figure out how to work with somebody and communicate and speak to them the way that resonates with them and communicate to them the way you need to be talked to to facilitate that kind of communication. That was a big part of it. So like a, a deep because Sometimes you don't really know your teammate that well. This last year yeah. that I did it, I did it with someone new and I knew her, but I didn't know her that well. Oh, yeah. And, but we both had done it before. So we both knew that on the way there, we had to go, okay, here's what I mean when I say this. And when my face does this, that's really what I mean. I don't, I'm not really upset. I'm just thinking or whatever, those kinds of things. Well, cause I mean, it's, it's, I guess relatively, it could be dangerous if you guys are not on the same page, right? Is, is that correct? Oh yeah, definitely. You can. You can get lost. <laughs> I mean, they're tracking you all the time. So there's yeah. a safety component to it, but definitely could be dangerous if you are not on the same page as the person riding in that truck with you. Awesome. And the other thing I learned is, is that things that you think you can't do, but you want to, you have to try. This is my biggest, this is my biggest motto in life is when I'm facing something that I've never done and I don't know how to do, I always think, you know, somebody dumber than me has figured this out. I've lived by that motto for many years. And now I do like, I have this big old Land Cruiser and I do all the mechanical work on it Oh wow! in my driveway. I look it up on YouTube and I figure out how to do it. And I just dive in because somebody dumber than me has done that in the past. It's an old truck. A lot of people have worked on those trucks and fixed them. So, <laughs> so I heard that you, you have an online community around this too. How'd that start? Yeah, that it's interesting. It started a while back. I wasn't part of starting it. My my ex husband was engaged in getting it all rolling, and then we kind of took it and ran with it for a while. And it just got started by they were in a group of enthusiasts who loved to get around and share the cool stuff on their trucks, but they never wanted to go anywhere. And so a, a group of friends they wanted they did want to go places, so they just started a website, and it just kind of grew organically. And a lot of that is an online thing. People get on to forums and they call it web wheeling. <laughs> but it's just a, a place to gather and organize trips. And then you just go out with people. You meet new people all the time. And it's just kind of an organically growing community. And it's just fun. It's, it's a great hobby. It's fantastic. Now, whether it's this the hobby you have here or work, who have been your mentors over the years? Mm, that's an interesting question. Did you, did you see it all I on have YouTube? at work? <laughs> <laughs> it's been my it's been the, my cohorts yeah. in most cases that have been my mentors in the in the overlanding space. I mean, the people I go out on runs with, some of them are just tremendously 
capable and experienced and been doing it for a long time. And the ones that approach, that teach me things without mansplaining it to me, because it is a, a more male, not so much anymore, but it was a more male dominated hobby or whatever. The ones that don't look at me and go, why is a girl driving a truck? That kind of thing. Those have been super helpful to me. But at work, I would say most of the people that have been my mentors have been my, my employees, the people that report to me, because they actually are trained in the things that we do. And they've taught me so many things. I have the capacity to lead them because I'm not afraid of decision-making and I just understand the business so well, but they've taught me some fantastic things. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, whether it be work or, or your hobby, if you could wave your magic wand and change something, now something that, that bugged you or something you felt like you can improve, what would it be? I would say it would be my ability, if I could wave a magic wand and improve anything, I would want to be better at delegating mm -hmm. because I have a really hard time with that. And I'm always trying to do everything, not because I don't think someone else can do it, but because partly it's because I think it's just going to take so much time to teach them how to do it that I might as well just do it myself. And the other part is I don't want to burden people. So... I do it myself and then things don't get done and then I get more and more stressed about that. I'd say that's true of both hobby and workplace, <laughs> but particularly workplace. So we talked about mentors. How about books? I mean, do you read any books, good books? I do, but I read, when I read books, they're, they're not inspiring at all. I love to read fantasy literature, really. Not like, I don't know, like, I guess fantasy Okay. Um, adventure fantasy or sci-fi fantasy. Which is cool. Like, like what? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm kind of in between books right now, but I worked with a guy who's not here anymore. And we ended up between him and me and my son, when my son was old enough to be an avid reader, yeah. the three of us have this little like long distance book club now. Oh, cool. And we're all sharing books with each other. They're kind of obscure. There's nothing really, really that I can think of off the top of my head, but just little series that we all recommend to each other. Pretty Very funny. cool. We've read a lot of books. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> now, we learned about this very unique business that kind of I never knew existed. And, and we talked about your hobby, which is, which is fantastic. Now, is there anything that, that I haven't asked you but should have? Maybe one of the things that you had mentioned as what were keys to success. And yeah. one thought I had about that was that's something I'd already mentioned, the whole concept of not being afraid to do something because dumber people than me have figured it out in the past. There's that. But the other thing that is important to note, I think, is that the only way that I can possibly be successful at work is if I don't work too much. Uh -huh. If I, I'm very vehement about maintaining a flexible work-life balance because it is just not, I do not live to work and I don't work around the clock. That's the American way and people get complimented for working 80-hour weeks and I have this life to live and I am not going to spend it all at work. And I feel like I do a better job at work because I'm more clear-headed that way and not resentful and bitter of how much time I'm working. Interesting. Makes sense. So can you quantify it? What, is, what does it mean for you to have work-life balance? I mean, maybe sort of describe it to us. What, what do your days look like roughly? 
Well, I'm lucky enough for my work is flexible. So I'm lucky um, and I'm lucky in that capacity that I'm able to be flexible. So I work eight hours a day and no more unless I, unless there's some special project or some special reason to do that. But like the management of American small businesses nowadays are like, you're a slacker if you only work eight hours a day, but that that's what I do. I focus my day around finishing at that time. And if I can't, I still change locations. I'll go home or move somewhere else or whatever. And then I also have a big balance of working at home sometimes and working in the office sometimes because I really enjoy both and I don't want to do it solely one way or the other way. So that's another thing. And, and you know, my work allows for that. I can work the same at home or in the office. doesn't matter. Well, it's very nice to, to be in an environment that allows you to, to be flexible like that. Yeah, it's huge. Well, Amy, thank you so much. Yeah. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.